This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Even more elections. It's elections, elections, elections. This time in America, we will be talking about it all. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London, but this time in Washington, D.C. And I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12, still in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the news from Kesha podcast. So, Jonathan, there in Washington, D.C., results are in, sort of, sort of. Yeah, I mean, isn't it funny? Because I seem to remember we said if the Israeli elections won't be clear for weeks, months, who will even know? And actually, it was pretty clear pretty quickly. Whereas this time, as you and I speak, which is probably into lunchtime Wednesday for Americans, so late evening in Israel. The TV anchors are not even able to say who will control the House or the Senate either. Now, yes, individual races have been called, but normally by now you know roughly the political complexion of the two houses of the legislature of the country, and they're both on a knife edge. I mean, most people here will tell you that Democrats are going to lose control of the House, but nobody can call the Senate. And I have to say, you know, when I say most people here, keep reminding me of this, because one of the things I say a lot, and I did, I've i said it even when I was here as a correspondent, which was Whisper It three decades ago, um, was the conventional wisdom in Washington is always wrong. And I said it to one of our interviewees that I was speaking to as I've been tra- traveling around this country for various Guardian reporting and podcasting work. And I said it to one of them, and I wish I'd said it more, because once again, it was, and they really were. When I was here, it was like a rule. Whatever all the pundits were saying would almost always turn out to be wrong. And yet again, they were all wrong, including the parties themselves, because they all thought it was going to be a massive red wave and the Republicans were just going to wipe out, you know, 30, 40, 50 seats in the House. And yes, almost certainly take the Senate. And people were already writing the political obituaries for Joe Biden and for the uh, administration. And it's, you know, hashtag red ripple. <laughs> you know, red trickle. It's just not, you know, so far, and look, things could still change. There could be a sudden sort of flurry of seats. But as it looks, as it stands right now, yes, the Democrats have lost a few, but it's nothing like what people were preparing for. And Democrats appear to have done pretty well for a midterm year where normally you take an absolute hammering. Uh, and it's very natural, you know, with a Democrat president to lose the, the first midterm of the first term, that normally you lose a whole lot. Obama lost 60 plus, Clinton lost 50 plus, mm-hmm. Trump lost 40. And so far, it's counted on single digits. So it's been a big surprise and some uncertainty as I sit here in Washington, D.C. Two things are interesting, and I'd love to hear your take on that. First, the sort of anti-Trump effect, right? The people who kind of Trump really endorsed, pushed, wanted to get elected, Not so much. Not a great success in a few uh, cases. The other thing uh, on the blue side of the map is the uh, Roe versus Wade effect, or rather the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. And how does that affect, how does that play into the fact that we're not seeing really the red, the red wall, but rather what you call the red trickle? So I think it's both. I, I think both things have really played a big part. First of all, the Trump effect, which is, I'm trying to think what the opposite to Trump premium is. Like when there's a Trump deficit, I'm not sure, Trump debit, there's something 
you know, really measurable. There is an albatross around the neck of candidates who are associated with him. And you've got these certain states which are really like test cases. Perhaps the best example, clearest, is in Georgia, where Brian Kemp, the state's governor, kept his distance from, pretty right-wing guy, by the way, but he kept his distance from Trump in the most vivid way, which was in 2020, he and the state's Secretary of State, who the person who presides over elections, robustly and and publicly stood firm against Donald Trump's desire to overturn the count and overturn the election. Remember, famously, Trump on tape saying, "Find me eleven thousand votes, you know, rig this election for me," um, which is, by the way, classic projection because now he says the election was rigged. But the per- the only person who was ever really caught red-handedly trying to rig that election two years ago was him. So the two Republicans who stood firm and said no to Donald Trump easily, easily coasted to re-election, comfortable, you know, called by nine, 10 o'clock on Tuesday night, easy. Mm -hmm. Then the Trump favourite, Herschel Walker, former footballer, running back, who I went and watched campaign in Georgia last week, you know, a very flawed candidate, not somebody- That's an understatement. (laughs) It is a bit of British understatement there. I mean, first of all, just not impressive in terms of grasp of policy, etc., but also accused, credibly accused, by a series of women particularly and others of threatening violence, threatening to choke people, and, you know, hypocrisy because he's an anti-abortion candidate, and yet two women have come forward to say he pressured them to have abortions. But crucially, handpicked by Trump, he's now in a photo finish against the Democrat opponent. So you can see the gap, the, as it were, anti- or non-Trump guide, or guys doing really well in Georgia, the pro-Trump guy struggling. And then you look at uh, Pennsylvania, where Doug Mastriano wanted to be governor, a serious hardcore Trumpist who was literally there on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January, uh, the attempted insurrection there, easily, easily beaten by Josh Shapiro, nice Jewish boy. Some people say he might be America's first Jewish president. And I heard someone say he'd be America's second Jewish president after Joe Biden. And then I heard someone else say he'd be the third Jewish president because remember Barack Obama, there was a famous New Republic magazine cover, I think, saying America's first Jewish president about Obama. Anyway, Shapiro did really well against Mastriano. And then the slightly less Trumpy Mehmet Oz, although handpicked by Donald Trump, he fought a little bit closer, but he too lost because he was too tied to Donald Trump. So you've got all these candidates across the country really hurt by their link to Donald Trump. And yes, as you say, the thing that seems to have really shielded Democrats from the red wave that wasn't is, first of all, that argument about democracy. You need to vote capital D Democrat to save small D democracy. That was the argument Joe Biden and others were making in the final days. Seems to have worked. It seems to have brought people out. They didn't want to vote for these election deniers. And then second, absolutely a big story of this election, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn constitutionally protected abortion rights, you know, the signs are all there through the summer. I don't quite know why the experts sort of discounted it for for November. They kept on saying, oh, abortion has faded as an issue. Well, not so much. Women were very motivated and others to turn out and vote against Republicans. So even though this is a midterm year and terrible economic climate, Mm -hmm. you'd think incumbents would take a battering. The Democrats held on because people were motivated about democracy and they were motivated about abortion. Yeah. And the fact that Kentucky, right, the reddest of red states, 
if I'm not mistaken, rejected a constitutional amendment that would have said that there was no right for abortion. That also signals something in that realm. I agree with you. When the the whole story blew up uh, with the Supreme Court, everyone said, well, it's a long road until November and voters will forget and it might not have any effect on on the midterms. Well, it it did, which I think is very interesting. By the way, you just you're right to pick up on Kentucky and there was also in Kansas Mm -hmm. There had been a vote earlier in the summer, which was shocked a lot of people because another very red state, which never, you know, what's the matter with Kansas, famously went Republican. And yet they also did exactly the same thing you're mentioning in Kentucky. They voted against any moves to restrict abortion. And in Kansas, almost saying Dufka, hmm. a Democrat won as governor. Now, now she was already an incumbent, but people thought she may be in trouble this time. No, she one. So the, the, Donald Trump's great contribution to his party is really to have redrawn them. You know, I've just written a piece for The Guardian saying this election, he always is so egotistical and says it's all about me. Well, it was all about him, but not in a good way. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Trump effect I, really cost them bad. And, and to me, I, I'm also very, I'm fascinated, you know, these kinds of relationships I'm always fascinated by. We talked a lot about like Netanyahu and Bennett, all kinds, like his relationship with DeSantis and the way that he came out and uh, in an interview to News Nation, he said, you know, my endorsements made DeSantis. He won because of me. He could have been more gracious. That is giving you a little bit of an indication to what we're going to see in 2024, what kind of race within the Republican Party. And I think that's that's fascinating. Completely fascinating. I was in um, Pennsylvania at the weekend in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, for this big rally addressed by Donald Trump. I mean, the whole thing, it's totally Fidel Castro. It's two hours he speaks. You know, the people are lining up from 7.30 that morning. It's like a religious event, mm-hmm. actually. And it's an extraordinary thing. But at one point, he does a sort of PowerPoint. He projects on these giant screens, these graphics. And, you know, are they policy proposals? Are they messages that would help the local candidates? No, they are not. On the big screen, he shows his polling numbers against a little bit on how he polls against Biden, but mainly how he polls against Ron DeSantis wow. and Mike Pence and all the others. And he called him Ron DeSanctimonious, not one of his best nicknames. You know, Donald Trump normally is quite good with that crooked Hillary, Sleepy Joe, they stick, little Marco, do you remember? About Marco Rubio. He's quite good at zeroing in on people's weakness. And it told me that he doesn't really know how to fight Ron DeSantis. He couldn't do it, mm. Ron DeSanctimonious. It wasn't mm. very good. Too many but he syllables. Wanted to crow about how... Yeah, and also it doesn't sort of you don't think of sanctimonious as a yeah. thing. It's about Ron. It didn't work, but the point is they are that is get the popcorn out because that is going to be a real battle between those two. They can't stand each other, and Donald Trump's people did really badly, and Ron DeSantis did brilliantly well. I mean, he won Florida by such a landslide, mm-hmm. even in Miami Dade County, which normally goes Democrat. I mean, and he won Latino votes. I mean, he really is strengthened by these results, just as Donald Trump is weakened. Yeah, well, we mentioned uh, Donald Trump's uh, interview with uh, News Nation, so let's let's hear the little bit of it that kind of got the headlines. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit, and if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. I wish I had a little bit of that in my life. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's so brazen, isn't it? I mean, I try, because I do try to give the man a tiny bit of credit and think, you can't be that egregious a narcissist. And so maybe he maybe was, maybe he was smiling, he although did, it did remind me, maybe he was channeling, he maybe he was channeling Michael Scott, which I also prepared for you. I hope you remember The Office, that series that Americans stole from you guys. Um, remember, he said this. I do want the credit without any of the blame. So maybe he was channeling him. I don't know. <laughs> 
He, there is something. A li- I mean, I'm, I always think of him as David Brent, which was the British version. There is something a little bit of that in Donald Trump. The sort of the neediness and the sort of patheticness. Um, <laughs> it's a big conversation among um, Democrats now, among Republicans now. Is do they begin to look at Donald Trump a different way as a serial loser? I mean, he has now presided over three consecutive defeats for Republicans, mm. and so. Do you begin to do they do Republicans begin to think you know, this guy he's he's besides all the things that you know threat to democracy and would be dictator but maybe he's also a loser and among them that probably hurts much more as an attack. I uh, I, I want to hear a little bit. I, you mentioned Pennsylvania. Can we hear a little bit about your visit there? Yeah, so Pennsylvania was was obviously a fascinating state because it was one of those ones that was going to come down to the wire, and I was there a long time because. You know, it's big and you have to be, I was in Pittsburgh and then in Philadelphia and seeing lots of candidates, etc. And, and big figures endorsing candidates. But I did that thing, which, uh, you know, I um, it's a running joke among friends of mine, but also I think other people do this too, which is when abroad, you do sort of, I do, seek out a synagogue, even though weeks may go by when I don't necessarily do that, when I could go to synagogue closer to home. So I admit to that, that, you know, there's all these people who don't, you know, won't go to synagogue in, you know, Finchley, but they will go to synagogue in, in Kabul, you know, they find the synagogue. So it's like a thing. I know that. And I plead guilty to that a bit. Um, but in this case, I was when I was in Pittsburgh, and the, the sh- my schedule kept on changing because of where the candidates were. But I realised I was going to be in Pittsburgh for Shabbat, and it felt very um, right to, that I would seek out the Tree of Life synagogue, where, of course, the most bloody massacre of Jews in American history took place four years ago, and the anniversary was not that long ago at all. So I, you know. W- made contact with the synagogue to ask about services and things. And I also wanted to make sure that there was no issue at all about security, you know, a stranger, me, going up to the synagogue. And I just thought, I don't even want a second of somebody thinking, we don't know this guy, who is he? So I wanted to prepare the ground. And it turns out they don't meet at the building anymore. Mm. And there hasn't been a service. I didn't really think about this and I didn't know it. There haven't been synagogue services since what they call in the the congregants call 1027, Hmm. the date. Uh, And they do that. One of them told me as if I hadn't clocked it. He said, you know, like 9-11. For them, it's a catastrophe on that scale. Um, And of course it is. And so they call it 1027. The rabbi referred to it that way in his sermon. So they instead having to hold services in another shul nearby, very grand, wonderful building, a reminder that Pittsburgh was once one of those big industrial cities, you know, where a big Jewish community and, uh, you know, a different era. It was very, it was very poignant to be there. It was very small. It was Friday night service. There were only 13 people there, I counted. Um, There were more joining via Zoom. And I spoke to the rabbi and congregants afterwards, and they said, look, you know, the pandemic hurt us, obviously, like a lot of shuls. And so people have choose to go connect via Zoom. But the rabbi said to me afterwards, you know, it wasn't just that. And that very non-judgmentally, he said, look, some people lost their faith after 1027 and couldn't and haven't come back. And so just to be with them, to stand with them, to hear the Kaddish said in their shul, I was very pleased to be there. And it was a moment of pause away from the campaign trail. It was very poignant to me. I think it was sad to be there, given that it wasn't 
a big thriving community was you yeah. know, on that day at that moment. It didn't look like that. And uh, we all understand why. Do you know how many people are joining on Zoom? Is it, is it in the hundreds? Is it in the in dozens? Well, you know, they said more. Mm-hmm. They said that were more joining on Zoom. But I didn't get the sense yeah. it was hundreds. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, my journalistic impulse, I slightly repressed because I didn't want to... Okay press that because I worried that the answer wouldn't be so high I don't know maybe more um and it was lovely they were extremely welcoming they were very warm I loved being there and I would urge other Jews if you're visiting Pittsburgh seek out online you can see and make contact with them do that um but you know as I say I've always done it I've you know covered South Carolina primaries and found my way to the shul in Charleston, you know, I've uh, one of the a wonderful old Southern synagogue, you know, I do that. And, um, but this had an extra poignancy, obviously. So we've been talking all about this election, which is obviously very fresh in our minds, but there was only a massive election just last week. Just I a mean, week we, ago, you know, right. It feels like a year ago, right. <laughs> it, it, already it does. Um, so I was. we were talking about, you know, where the outcome's clear. It's not as if officially a government has formed. I mean, you, it's, well, where are we up to? No, we, we take our time here. Um, we are up to the point, obviously, as we said, a clear winner, Benjamin Netanyahu residing over a clear 64-seat uh, coalition. On Sunday, this coming Sunday, President Herzog will grant Netanyahu officially the mandate to form his government. It will take a few weeks. I will get into what that government will be composed of in a minute, but I just want to tell you a little bit about the sentiment here, uh, Jonathan, in the liberal capital of Israel, which is Tel Aviv, uh, not the official capital, obviously. But, you know, it feels a little bit like, if I memory serves, you were also in New York the night of November 8th, 2016, when Donald Trump uh, won. And I don't know if you remember that moment where suddenly the streets became very, very quiet like this sort of sadness descended over the city and sort of uh, New Yorkers were shell-shocked to realize it wasn't even official, but to realize that actually Donald Trump was elected president. And it's a little bit of what the Israeli left is feeling uh, right now, these Israeli center and the center left. It's not that they couldn't envision the scenario that Netanyahu will actually win or reach the uh, goal of 61. That was in the air. But the fact that for them, this is the nightmare scenario, right? Not only Netanyahu has a stable government now, not only is he returning to power, right, but he has Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the far-right leader in his, probably in his coalition, and some even pointed to the fact, if I'm comparing to the United States, pointed to the fact that in the popular vote, the difference between the two blocks, the BB block and the anti-BB block, is a few thousand votes. But in mandates, it's eight mandates. So that's a clear resounding uh, victory. Now, of course, let's let's uh, go back to where we actually are. I've seen the fact that a few Jewish organizations around the world are sort of pleading with Netanyahu, don't make Ben Gvir a minister. U.S. officials saying the administration is not going to deal with Ben Gvir if he's going to be a minister. Let me take you a few weeks into the future, Jonathan, because it's going to take a few weeks to form this government. And a spoiler alert here, Ben-Gvir is going to be a minister. Netanyahu is going to form a coalition with Itamar Ben-Gvir, Bezalel Smotrich, their joint list of the Zionist, um, uh, religious Zionists, and the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox. This will be Netanyahu's government. Even if Netanyahu wanted an alternative government, even if he had someone on the other side, the anti-Bibi bloc, to reach out to Lapid or Gantz, it doesn't matter. His own base will now, at this point, not allow him 
not to form a government with uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir. But I do want to tell you one thing. And even though this is a resounding victory for Netanyahu, it's not his dream scenario. Because what we are at at this point is the fact that Netanyahu is the prime minister, but it is a Ben-Gvir government. And I mean that in the, in the sense that he will be the most powerful person in that government, and he is an unruly element in this coalition that Netanyahu is going to have a lot of headaches with. So I wanted to give you a, just a, a scenario that can happen and unfold, but I'm going to let you, you know, say something in the meantime. No, I think it's really uh, interesting that you, in effect, have said there are limits on the power of Netanyahu because he has a desire which I thought would prevail, actually, or not thought, I wondered if it would prevail, which was he always likes being somehow central in his own coalitions, pressure from the left, pressure on the right. He gets to play the adult in the room, balancing these conflicting things. So I'd read this stuff about, oh, he'll try and split Ben-Gvir, peel Ben-Gvir away from Smotrich and then bring in Benny Gantz instead. And that way he takes, he avoids the international diplomatic hit and diplomatic, including world Jewish communities. He avoids that diplomatic hit of the title Minister Ben-Gvir. That seemed plausible to me. And I thought not just plausible, but, but also something he would want. And yet you're quite firm that even if he does want that, he's not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So that that makes me wonder why, why, if he wants it, can't he get it? Well, I'm not sure. First of all, I'm not sure he wants it. Um, but, okay. you, you know, I, I think that he, look, one thing is definite. He wanted a controlled Ben Gvir, he's going to get a huge Ben Gvir. That is not something he wanted, right? It is something that, uh, the the, uh, perfect embodiment of be careful what you wish for. Even if he would say to himself, look, I can maybe form a government, as you say, that'll have some elements that are a little more moderate. Again, his base will not allow him to leave out Itamar Ben Gvir. And he understands that the, the more he leaves him out, the more powerful he will become. But if you bring him into the coalition and give him even give him the the ministry that he wants, by the way, which is, of course, the uh, Ministry of uh, Internal Security, right, to be, in effect, the minister responsible for the police. Let's just pause on that for a second, right? The man who's been convicted of criminal acts, including support of terror organization, incitement of racism, will be the head of police. Even if you do that, I think he what he thinks is that he will squeeze him back to his actual size. His actual size is not worth 14 seats. And, when, and, and part of that, presumably, is because he'll make him unpopular, because suddenly he loses the whole cachet of being the rebel outsider exactly. maverick. Exactly. So that, and because that it's a really interesting wrinkle about populist politics everywhere that the way sometimes to shrink these people down to size is to actually see them in office because then they can't pose as the plucky outsider and so on. Exactly. It's such a gamble, though. I mean, it is such a gamble. Right. And I, I want to remind you, of course, that this is a man that. You know, we are all here in the Middle East, here in Israel, sitting on a powder keg. This is a man who holds all the matches. Now, let's think of a scenario like this. He's the minister of internal security. In his first decision, he decides to, the conditions of the Palestinian terrorists serving time in Israeli prison, he decides to put new curbs on those prisoners. That's one of his uh, promises in the election on the campaign trail. This is what he does. Riots break out in jails. Riots break out in Gaza. A flare-up between Israel and Gaza uh, begins. And the only way to end this is, we've seen this many times, some sort of concession to Hamas in Gaza, either in money or in other conditions. And then Ben Gvir says, I don't want to be part of this. Netanyahu was weak against terror. I'm leaving the government. That is just one scenario out of a million that can happen when you put in someone like this inside your coalition. Netanyahu knows this. 
And again, he's a little bit in a situation that he's not happy with, which is he is not in total control of his coalition. So all the ink internationally has been spilled about Itamar Ben-Gvir. He's the name that mm-hmm. people are committing to memory. But he's actually not even, as I understand, even leader of that block. And there's Betzalel Smotrich. You know, he's not, not exactly a shy and retiring wallflower either, right? Is he going to give headaches to this new government? Uh, not only is he going to, he has been in the past week. The whole so we we need to say that the whole sort of coalition, future coalition, still line has been appeasement and let's reach out to the other side. And Netanyahu in his election night speech said, I am prime minister of all Israelis, even Israelis who didn't vote for me. And Itamar Ben-Gvir writing an op-ed in Israel Hayom saying with the title, Achaya Smolanim, my brothers on the left, right? Everyone suddenly becoming peaceniks and trying to send this message of somehow be together. Bezalel Smotrich is doing the exact opposite. Bezalel Smotrich this week the man who actually, as you said, heads the, the religious Zionist party, Ben Gvir is number two. What he did this week, he stood at the Knesset plenum, and it was the commemoration of the 27 years of the uh, Rabin assassination. And he said about the Shin Bet, the Israel Security Agency, he said this, not only did they fail to protect Rabin, they used irresponsible tactics yet to be uncovered in full in order to encourage the assassin to carry out his plan. Essentially saying the Shin Bet, part of the intelligence community, uh, as part of Rabin's assassination. That's like saying the FBI killed Kennedy. Now, this is real conspiracy theory stuff. This is deep state stuff. And the fact that he is saying this, and let's make it clear, pouring a factory of salt on the biggest open wound of Israeli society means something. Okay, we, we maybe should mention, take this a little bit in reverse and say that indeed the, the Shin Bet did have an operative in the Israeli extreme right called Avishai Raviv, but every commission that looked into it, and even Igal Amir, the assassin himself, said that Avishai Raviv did not push in any way his own actions. So why is he doing this? And I think it's important to look at it because this is an indication of what kind of minister Betsaris Motlich will be. I think he's doing this one for one reason is to show you know what? We'll take this one more reason. He's a human being and he doesn't like all the attention that Benville has been getting. He wanted a little bit of the attention himself. That's first and foremost. For sure. Um, but also he's eyeing the Jewish division in the Shin Bet, right? The organization, the, the part of the uh, security agency that deals with Jewish terror. And he's saying, he's trying to deter them and say, look, I see you guys and I know what you're doing. But the most important thing is, I think, he's trying to be this kind of smokescreen. He's sending the Israeli media on that direction. Everyone's very upset about this. And not to talk about what the real plan is. And the real plan, of course, is to curtail or to curb or to, you know, depends on what your worldview is, the Supreme Court. That is Betzalel Smotrich's main uh, plan, which he will, you know, set in motion the, the minute he becomes a minister. He's not going to be the justice minister, but he's definitely going to be part of the, of the coalition. It's an interesting divergence that's going on here. There are lots of people, even who are not directly involved in writing about or living in Israel, who have often said that Israel is a kind of trailblazer on in populism, that what happens in Israel is an in, leading indicator of what will happen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, this is the idea that Trump is the American Bibi rather than Netanyahu, who is the Israeli Trump. You know, mm-hmm. Netanyahu was doing this stuff first. This is an interesting divergence now, because so far we have been able to see that the trends there are replicated. Also. Here you've had these elections in the United States where populism in its most egregious and sort of naked form has been checked by the electorate to the point where now the discussion among Republicans is kind of, do we need to dial it back? 
And some of the really far-right figures, you know, this Lauren Bobert in Colorado, she lost, it seems. It's quite interesting now that Israel is actually going much further. And this, this assault on the judiciary, mm-hmm. which is always a theme, you know, of populists everywhere, is to attack the judges, call them enemies of the people. That happened even in Britain after Brexit. Judges branded enemies of the people. But Israel is going now a step further if Smotrich runs this agenda and genuinely starts reforming and diminishing the powers of the judiciary. It's just an interesting little moment where there's a pulling back Mm -hmm. from that in, you know, Liz Truss, big big Brexit populist, loses out to the more technocratic Richie Sunak. Republicans get a, a very bad set of results in the United States. Israel is going further into this movement while mm. others perhaps are stepping back. Early days, evidence not com- not full yet, but there's just a few signs that, that the Smotrich experiment if he's, and project mm. of judicial assault is where lots of populists wanted to go, but yeah. in the end feared to tread, but Israel's going there. Well, I think there are two things to say. First of all, the Israeli left, again, still shell-shocked, as I kind of explained to you at the beginning. I think that Parts of the Israeli left is kind of, I don't know if hoping is the right word, but saying, yeah, let's have this far right government, the most far, the, the, as far as Israel ever went into the right, let them, the pendulum swing that way only to have it swing back, right? Which is a part of what you're saying, because actually the United States is going, is now the pendulum is swinging back. I think it's it's going to be a very interesting, let's put it this way, an understatement time here, because his plans for the judicial system and the Supreme Court, they're not going to go through without a, a battle from the Israeli left and from the Supreme Court and from the center of the Israeli public sphere. Remember, there are other things that were going on. He started to talk about football and Shabbat and saying that this is something that should be discussed. Other members of his party were talking about the pride, the gay pride, and maybe we should seek legal ways to erase that from the uh, books. By the way, Netanyahu prompting Netanyahu to send a very urgent uh, announcement saying there will be no changes in LGBTQ rights in Israel. So you're saying uh, just the first days of this? I think Netanyahu understands that it's going to be very hard to defend, not only internally, but also to the world, a government that not only has Ben Gvir as minister, as I said, that is going to happen, but also has a Knesset that is trying to curb the Supreme Court and some sort of curbing of gay rights. This is going to be a package that's going to be very, very hard for not only uh, the world, but also for many Israelis to to actually digest. It is really fascinating for us now to watch where what does Netanyahu's stomach and what does he not stomach? And what who is he prepared to offend and who is he prepared not to offend? Mm-hmm. And so that point that world Jewish organizations pleading with him, do not make Ben Gvir a minister, that is going to be a nightmare. You know, morally it's offensive, but also it's a, it's a sort of PR headache. Mm-hmm. And he, from what you've said, from your account, he's going to go ahead and say he doesn't he does not mind distressing world Jewish opinion in that way. On the other hand, he's canny enough to know that if his government gets branded as hostile to LGBTQ people, that is a global PR and and potentially economic disaster for the country. He will have seen the boycotts of, for example, American states that don't offer bathrooms, etc., as requested by different groups. He's going to be, he will understand the risks there. And it's fascinating to me that he said, well, well, no to that, you know, because I think he would get where, how, where that would leave him in terms of American public opinion, potential commercial boycotts, forget BDS, that would be a whole other world of pain for him. 
But that other agenda of, you know, football on, on Shabbat, this is a kind of Jewish Taliban agenda, which again, against the tide of history, you know, while the world is applauding Iranian women who are taking off the hijab or are protesting against it, if there are reports coming out of Israel that, you know, this or that is being banned in daily life or even a proposal to ban it, that is not the place, even though Netanyahu loves going against Democrats and he likes owning the libs and he's very happy to be applauded by Fox News and hated on MSNBC, I think that's a state, some of that that we talked about, especially the homophobic agenda. And, and, that's and a nightmare religion, I, I agree. And, and religion and state, because a lot of his voters won't agree with that football on, on Shabbat thing that Smotrich came out of. This is not going to be smooth sailing. Th- that is what I'm trying to say. I think we should probably dedicate a few lines for the uh, Israeli left. We left it last week with the fact that we didn't know if Meretz did or didn't pass the electoral threshold. It didn't. And Mirab Michaeli, who... As you foresaw, you were right. I was? Okay. I'll take your word for it. I was very tired well, I mean, last I time we did the I, episode, so I'll take your word for it. No, um, no, you were very firm on that. I was still sort of slightly, I'll be honest, clinging to the hope they might. You said, no, they won't. I'm, but the, also the thing I will remind listeners, you did always say, if any one of those parties falls be, below the threshold, that is it, game over Netanyahu's prime minister. And that is exactly how it played out. I'm just going to use you saying you're right as my ringtone. I'm fine with that. You can you didn't have to elaborate. <laughs> but the point is that, that uh, I remind you that the Labour leader, Mirav Michaeli, who refused to run in a joint ticket with Meretz, was uh, blamed for this, for Meretz's uh, demise. She came out in a press conference. It took her two days to come out to the press, uh, refused to apologize, completely non-apologetic, throwing all of the blame on Yari Lapid, who uh, said, vote for me and the rest of the parties are safe prompting Haaretz's uh, editorial to say in its title, Mirav Michaeli, go home. But uh, let's say that if you think of the longevity of the, the political longevity of leaders of the Labour Party, if they make a mistake, I wouldn't bet. What was that Liz Truss and a head of lettuce that an, a British tabloid had? I wouldn't bet that Mirav Michaeli is going to stay as head of Labour for a very long time. Obviously, she's not. there's enough blame to go around, right? I mean, we said this as well. Lapid took a very risky tactic here saying, vote for me and the rest of the parties are safe. Meretz and Labour are safe. Well, they weren't. And that obviously is a tragedy, not only uh, for the Israeli left in these elections. I think Meretz is a very important party and its place in Israeli politics is important. The voice that it, it had uh, was very important and it doesn't exist now. And the Labour thing is... You know, you mentioned before about the human psychological impulse in politics, mm-hmm. and it's important. Labour, it's about can you face reality in a way? Mm-hmm. That Labour has such a storied history. It founded the country, it ran the country for the first three decades uninterrupted. It's about accepting that decision she had to make about with merits. It turned on the question of whether she could accept the reality that is, Labour is now a fringe party. It's a small party. You have to behave accordingly. And instead, in her perhaps, but in a lot of Labour Party members, is no, we are still a party that aspires to lead Israel. And therefore, if you're in a party that aspires to lead Israel, no, you don't do deals with some little tiny party just to save your skin. If anything, Yair Lapid with his 20-odd seats is the usurper and pretender to the throne. I'm the real king here. And I understand historically why you'd think that. And maybe even one day is the Israeli Labour Party does come back. But right now, it looks delusional to be thinking like that. And you just have to, at some point, it's easy for me to say, but sort of accept that history has moved on. And the new void force that the Labour Party used to represent in Israel is now 
Yair Lapid and his, uh, and, and combined in a way with Benny Gantz, that those two things are bigger. And Labour, all it really has is the name, mm. which is hard to, to face up to. It's, you know, there are sentimental attachments in these projects. It's like somebody who, you know, once presided over a big landed estate who now lives in the kind of coachman's cottage in the corner, but still thinks he is lord of the manor. You know, it, things have changed. And it's very, very hard to accept that reality. But I think, you know, that penny is going to have to drop at some point, even if the name maybe will come back and live again in some form. We have our tradition to honour, which means handing out some awards. I have a candidate for Chutzpah of the Week, which is, it hadn't crossed my radar before, but KFC's Kentucky Fried Chicken's Deutschland branch, the German end of KFC, uh, have now apologised. We should put that up front. They say, sorry, we made a mistake. After they sent out an alert to customers with a special promotional offer for November the 9th, which of course is the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the huge, bloody and lethal sweeping pogrom in Nazi Germany. Kristallnacht lives on in the memory, but Kentucky KFC Deutschland decided that they would mark the anniversary of Kristallnacht by, and I quote, treat yourself to crispy chicken with extra cheese for Kristallnacht Memorial Day was their offer. You look um, and you see what they call the Reichspogromnacht. Uh, That was their offer, which was you can mark this solemn and bloody day, brutal day in Jewish history with crispy chicken, with extra cheese. I mean, Treif doesn't even begin to cover it. It's not, it's not it? the biggest I mean, issue here. Not the biggest issue that it's Treif, but you I don't, know, it helps. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> I, I, I'm in Treif in the largest sense of that word. Um, yes, not only the meat and dairy issue, but rather the promotional offer for Kristallnacht. But they did acknowledge they'd made a mistake and they apologised on Twitter for it. But really, what, what, you know, what, how much more do we, do people have to know? about the Shoah to know that this is not something you do a promotional chicken offer. No, it's with. not it's not a holiday, um, guys. Unless you're a Nazi, it's, it's not, not a, a holiday. holiday. It's not a holiday. Yeah. Um okay, agreed. Um, I don't think they des- I, I think it's well deserved even if they apologized. Still, still it exists. So I think it's uh, des- well deserved. Um by the way, I I learned through this though that um that Kristallnacht as a term is not favored in Germany because it is itself associated as a word of Nazi propaganda, uh, that it was that apparently, I read, that the Nazis themselves dubbed it the Night of Broken Glass. Apparently, again, I, I, I defer to others who may put me straight, but it is more sort of sound and sensitive to refer to it as pogromnacht rather than using the Nazis' own terminology, all of which invites an interesting question, which is if the KFC were sensitive enough to know that they shouldn't call it Kristallnacht, how could they have missed the slightly bigger picture, which is, as you say, it's not exactly a holiday where you do a promotional offer with crispy chicken and extra cheese. So chutzpah of the week to them, I think. Single-handedly, um, with no competition. Okay, I'm going to lighten the mood with a uh, mention award. 
uh, who I will award to two uh, leaders. One is the president of Israel, Yitzhak Herzog, and the other is the prime minister of Tunisia, Najla Boudin Ramadan. By the way, the first uh, woman prime minister of uh, Tunisia, they were chatting briefly. We should say Israel and Tunisia do not have any diplomatic relations at all. They were chatting briefly at COP27 in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt this week, and uh, the camera actually caught them laughing, smiling at each other, which is a nice moment, but there were some uh, parts in the Arab world that were upset with this, including Hezbollah-affiliated Lebanese newspaper that wrote, that smile is a sin. So no, no smile is a sin, and definitely not this one. It's actually a really nice picture, and I think they both deserve the Mensch Award for it. A good and strong choice. I think our award winners can feel very happy, and they certainly could not demand any kind of recount or judicial review. We will entertain no such challenges. These are the results. The verdict (laughs) is in. Can you see that I have spent the last several weeks immersed in elections? Um, Talking of mention, a mention for of next week's Unholy. We have a rather special guest for you. A long and full extended conversation with none other than Yoni Utah. Go on. It's going to be Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, we think it's a really nice conversation, uh, and you should uh, listen in. I think so too. I mean, he's obviously somebody who speaks and writes a lot, but I think this is a different kind of conversation, and I would urge you to tune in for that. Some of it is singing, isn't singing. Some, some of it's part Yeah, of he even sings to us. Can you imagine? He sings for us. I think I had to push him only slightly. Um, to get him to do that. I love that bit. You're going to enjoy that one. We are going to say that you should recommend us, you should review us, you can connect with us via Unholy Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, all the other ways to do that, and reviews on Apple Podcasts. They are very helpful and very good. Some of you have been very, very warm and generous. Keep those coming, um, and we have people to thank. We always do. Thank you to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan, Jonathan, safe travels home, not staying in D.C. forever. London is calling. And we shall meet next week. London is calling. We shall. I look forward to it. Be well. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.